Hello, this is Mimi A. And I'm Hung Black, and welcome to the MSG pod. Happy New Year, everyone! Happy New Year! Happy New Year! So, it was really, really lovely to have Nigella Lawson on our Christmas special, and I hope all of you have listened to the show now. And we can now announce the winners of our Yum Asia giveaway. So the question that we ask everyone is, why did Nigella buy MSG for the first time? And the answer is... For Mimi's Burmese fried chicken! The recipe of which you can find in her book, Mandalay. Um, and it's also on Nigella's website. So if you just do Google Mimi Burmese Fried Chicken, you will find my recipe on Nigella's website. And the winners of the rice cookers are as follows. Drum roll, please. <laughs> the main prize of the silver bamboo rice cooker goes to Kelvin Tan. Woo-hoo! Well done, Kelvin. And the two runner-up prizes of the bonsai bento rice cookers go to... Georgie Ma and Dorothy Porker. Well done, Kelvin, Georgie and Dorothy. Your prizes will be sent to you as soon as possible. And thank you so much to Yum Asia for giving us these prizes to give away to you all. And our guest this episode is the legendary Dan Leopard. He is the author of the iconic Short and Sweet. He is a baker, food writer, a photographer, and he's a presenter. Thank you for joining us, Dan. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you, Hong. I, I, uh, you know, it's funny. I go back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and it was very unusual to find uh, people who, like a, a cook who took photos or a cook who wrote and things. But today... It's almost essential. I, I think everybody has to has to be multitasking all the time, and uh, I don't know if that's a good thing. It's because I I, uh, I still find it difficult to then take a picture of the thing, uh, then write about it, then talk about it, then be looking into cameras. You're talking about it and all these things, but that's everybody's life now who works in food. I I think though I think you were a bit of a pioneer because I know you say that people are multi skilled and do all of those things, but I. I think there's more of a divide between new media and old media not to to be rude and call you old media mm. but i think you know if, if you have a website these days if you're a brand even you do have to be able to do all those things but i think for most people who are respected beloved authors i don't think they do generally do all their photography and all of their styling do they i, I think you're a rarity in that respect uh there's a few um alistair hendy um of course ha- yes was was doing that too but yes yeah, certainly back in the late 90s into the no- early noughties yeah people weren't really doing it and I think Alistair did it I did it because we we had an interest in photography too um, another person too is An- Anissa Halou Anissa Halou is an excellent photographer mm. um, and in I can't remember one of her early books she did she took all the photos in there yeah she's really good too so there's a few few people do it you know on the quiet I think though, with with you and Anissa and Alistair, to some extent, I, I feel that you guys have got some kind of how do you say, like anthropology in, in sensibilities. I think you're also interested a lot in the people and the culture, and I think that makes a difference as well. Well, I think too. Just going back to old media, I mean, the, it, it kind of had to be that way because you couldn't find out about things. You couldn't afford to buy cookery books you couldn't you so it was only through people only through observing people cooking things that you could you could get an any idea about how they were made i remember back in the very early 90s there's a, a chef juliet peston uh she's she's kind of off the radar now but she's the sister of robert peston 
who is the... the oh, the political poli- journalist. The political, the political journalist, journalist. And she wanted to make a cornmeal muffin as a friend of hers had tasted in the Fog City Diner in San Francisco. Now, of course, none of us had been to San Francisco. We didn't know what it tasted like. So she'd telephone her friend on a, you know, old-fashioned phone and, the, you know, costing a fortune, who would describe the flavour, describe the texture. We'd write down details. So so for even finding out how things were made, and we'd never know whether we got it right. <laughs> who knew? Who knew? There were no photographs. There were no kind of... It was it was almost impossible. So I think it meant that you had to dig deeper to to find out things. And maybe I don't know. Maybe 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 that changed the way that recipes were written. What's what was that noise earlier that just went off? Was my time going? Are you going to go and get you? Oh yeah. You going to go fetch your? Shall we stop and get the cookies? Yes, I'm going to go and get some biscuits that I made from Short and Sweet. Now, listeners, if you know me, you know that I'm not remotely a baker, uh, and so if these come out terribly, it's entirely my fault. I have made, and as you can see, they're, they're quite ugly because I have no patience to shape things correctly. But they smell incredible. Um, very they cheesy. Uh, you can smell the pepper. It's very, it's delicate, but it's there. I'm going to eat one right in front of you. <laughs> okay. That's so good. Oh, good. <laughs> good Thank you. You've made a calamitous baker capable of making something <laughs> really nice. <laughs> Okay, so, <laughs> so um, I was I was kind of stalking you basically, Dan, looking up <laughs> your 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 early life, and right. um, I read that you you started off um, as a chorus boy. Is that right? I did, I did, yeah, yeah. Tell us a bit about your acting career. <laughs> I was about sixteen or seventeen, and I had a girlfriend. I was living in Melbourne, and we'd been to see something like West Side Story at the theatre there, and I said to her. I could do that. I could be on stage. Yeah. And she did that. Well, if you think you're so good, why don't you show me? So I started doing dance classes, singing classes, really sort of working it. I got an agent. And when you're young, they'll say things to you like, oh, you've got all this talent and you've got all these things. Now, looking back, I see him as a predatory <laughs> kind of weird <laughs> thing. You know, Harvey Weinstein kind kind of character. Well, yeah, when you're young, the whole optics are different because Mm. you don't understand... You don't know what you don't know, kind of. No, thing. you just think it's yeah. someone who believes in you. Right? Yes, because they tell you that they they, yeah. they lie to you. <laughs> they, <Yeah>. they lie. <laughs> it's quite. I mean, it's quite interesting. You got into it at sixteen, though, having had no prior training at all. Well, you know, casting's a bit weird, really. I think that people are hiring you because you're young and you jump about and yeah. you pa- you pad out the background. So in Oliver, I was cast as one of the chorus in it, though I thought that meant. I was something. It just meant I was the right height. I looked probably like some in the London cast. There's also a lot of that that goes on. So you're matching people. So uh, of course they're getting equivalents. Okay. And then I did uh, three months of that in Melbourne. We started at the Adelaide Festival Centre, then went to Melbourne, and then I had all this money, and I was going to buy myself a ring for some reason. I got obsessed about an emerald ring. I wanted a. Oh, I don't wow. know. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm loving this story. And then I thought maybe I should go to New York. I think if I'd have gone to New York, I perhaps wouldn't be here now or even alive now. So I'm kind of glad that... (laughs) (laughs) Well, with hindsight, looking back on the way I was, I would have lived life to the full. (laughs) Right. 
And yeah, but my parents said, well, look, why don't you go to London? Because I had an, an uncle and aunt that lived in Watford. So I came to London and then I auditioned for uh, Joseph in his Technicolor Dreamcoat. <gasps> almost sort of within a week That's of getting here. That's the first here. album I ever bought. <laughs> <laughs> Was that the one with Jason Donovan? Was no, no. no, this is way before Jay. This oh, is 1984. <laughs> and, oh, wow. and so I did that. And while I was on tour, I took photos of the, of the cast and we had an acrobat kind of that was in it. So I did these kind of slightly homoerotic pictures of him sort of doing, doing gymnastic things. And then when <laughs> I got back to London, I thought, I, and I printed up my own pictures because I at school I'd studied photography. So I don't know why I thought this. I thought, maybe I could have an exhibition. So, and I was just walking through Soho. Just off Golden Square, there was a hairdresser called Demop. And there was a woman, Gina Portman, who was downstairs opening up this gallery called uh, Monolith. And I showed her my pictures and she said, do you want to have an exhibition? Wow. We could just do it. Uh, Actually, I didn't have any paper to print them. So I went to Ilford. Ilford were um, like Kodak, but but based in Britain. And they used to have an office just in, in Fitzrovia. And I showed them my pictures and I said, look, I'm going to have an exhibition, but I don't have any money. Could you give me all the film and paper for it? And they said, sure. Oh, my <laughs> God. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe no one had asked. <laughs> maybe, maybe I was the very first person to scrounge something from someone. So even, then, even then I knew how to get things free. And I, so, so, I'm, so, right, I'm uh, writing this down. Yeah, just, just ask. <laughs> yeah, so I printed up all the, all the pictures and... Uh, for fr- picture frames, I was walking past the the British Museum and there were skips outside. Skips used to be everywhere full of amazing things during the 80s. Most people in the 80s got everything. There was no eBay. There was no Amazon. There were only skips. And we had to get things out of skips. <laughs> so we'd sort of dive in and find things. And outside of the British Library, they were throwing out these mahogany frames uh, oh, that wow. they used to put sort of butterflies in. So I got as many as I could carry with a friend, Elaine, and I put the photos in. And I also printed up invitations for the opening and did a, did a poster design and, and put them together. And I just, I went to the library and got out copies of Vogue and Harper's Bazaar and wrote down all the names and addresses and sent all these invitations, posted all these invitations to everybody. And they came. Everybody came. Oh, oh my <laughs> came. So there were there were throngs of people. Now I think what was going on with hindsight that I was this young kid. It was in Soho. Soho was just coming up. It was at this very hip hair salon, which I didn't realise at the time. It was just the right place, the right time. Everybody came, and this fashion buyer came in and bought everything to oh, put wow. into a showroom in Milan of this network. I can't remember the name of the knitwear company. Mm-hmm. And I had to go over and install them in this, this, this place. Some of the pictures I just nailed to the walls and things, so it was all kind of a bit crazy. And then they paid me in cash. I spent it all. And then I didn't have any money, so a friend was going to see Italian Vogue, who was an illustrator, and he said, well, why don't we, you come with me? We'll drive over. So we drove to Milan in this little car. He had an appointment to see the art director at Italian Vogue, and he said, uh, my friend Dan does too. And just we just kind of blagged our way in. And the art director loved my pictures and said, would you like to work for us? And gave me, I don't know, maybe 18 or... 20 pages to do immediately and and they had this small offshoot magazine they were setting up called vanity 
and he sent me off to photograph Derek Jarman, uh, Spencer, and all the all the people that were oh, wow. Spencer Lee and all the people that were doing um, Caravaggio at the time. Yeah. And then by by doing all these pictures, like that kind of got me started. Okay, so I mean. <laughs> Pretty, pretty bloody glamorous life you were living there. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't realise that though. <laughs> it's kind of happened by accident, in, in a way. So you hadn't you, sort of yeah, planned it really. Into it, didn't you? Like literally, you fell into the skip and came out, and then suddenly you were signed <laughs> up by by Vogue. Well, absolutely, and but I think too, it was also, it's also something that's different now is that you needed to physically be near people in order to get work or opportunities and things. So, yeah. so I think being in Soho and gravitating around that that. I, I, I met people that I wouldn't have met if I'd have lived outside of the city. Cities had a much more important role in in connecting people, especially if you're on the the otherwise on the outskirts of society. It, it, city, cities allowed you to find people like yourself in a way that that suburban life didn't. Maybe. So you were a photographer, and you're a photographer for Italian Vogue. What? prompted your career change at 20 at 27 that's what it says on wikipedia anyway at 27 well it was yeah it was very brief and uh, i shone brightly for a short time <laughs> maybe maybe something <laughs> like that, that kind of. I, I started to get lots of work i started to work for tatler a lot and do lots of advertising and then uh, boy george asked me if i'd start doing his pictures and album covers so that gave me enough money to to get a place of my own so i i had a, a room in a flat in dean street just above Gino's hair salon. And I used to eat around the corner because I didn't really have a kitchen. So I used to eat around the corner at this restaurant called Alistair Little's. And uh, I enjoyed eating downstairs at the bar and behind the bar they had all these cookbooks there. So I would often go and eat on my own, uh, get very drunk on my own. And behind the bar, I, I would just read these cookbooks and really get into them and talk with Alistair when he'd, he'd come downstairs for a drink or something. And it was Alistair who, Little who said, you know, do you want to try cooking here? Because I'd shown such an interest. And he said he was just saying it as a joke. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I'd love to. I just love all these people offering you jobs. It's just brilliant. If someone is really into a chef's cooking, um, knows all about them, gets to know the chef and say, and then it comes out they need a job. You'll get a job. Yeah, come work for me. So I, and I started on the pastry section. And that's kind of where I've stayed ever since, really. Oh, right. So you start, started on pastry. Did you work the other sections and come back to pastry? or you just? There was a tendency to start people on pastry, which I, I think it's different now. I think pastry has been elevated into this. I was this going to say, that seems like the trickiest place to start. Well, it is, but chefs used to think it was the easiest. They used to oh, think gosh. that the most difficult thing was learning how to turn a steak, you know, rather than baking ice cream, puff pastries, doughs, yeah. every, you know, that, that actually is really, really yeah. difficult. So I, I started making bread there. And then after about a year or 18 months, I hated it. I needed to leave. <laughs> I met David Hockney in when I was a photographer. This friend who was a friend of his said, look, David needs a cook. Maybe you could cook for him. So I cooked for him a long Christmas or three or four months after leaving Alistair's. And then he went back to LA and I kind of went too. I found cooking there really intense, 
but you're sort of living inside someone else's life and it's not your life. It's, it's glamorous, it's fun. He'd have these great dinner parties and we'd be invite interesting people to it. And I'd get to sit at the table, cook and sit at the table, which is a slightly complicated thing because you cook and then you sit down and then you yeah, cook some yeah. more and you sit down. Uh, but it was, it was amazing. He was kind of a Yorkshireman living in Los Angeles. So I would go down to the supermarket and buy oxtail and things. And, <laughs> and uh, it was really good. Yeah. But I realized that I wanted to get back into uh, back into the kitchen. So David had given me a car and I had this, so I had this car and, and he said, look, keep the car and just drive to New York. And, and so I did. <laughs> and then got to New York and uh, walked into a kitchen and asked for a job. And they... Luckily gave me one. And then from there on, I, I got jobs in other places too. Uh, Anthony Bourdain was opening up a restaurant called La Tasca, which was this, this Portuguese-inspired place on Spring Street. And it was all a bit weird and dodgy. The way the money came, they couldn't pay us for a long time. And then these guys in black suits that kind of certainly gave off the whiff of being mafia. I don't know if they were. <laughs> kind of gave, gave us these envelopes. And I just thought, I'm out of here. So, oh so I took the money, bought a ticket, and came back to London. But then realised I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't have a job to come back to, and I didn't also didn't have any money because I'd spent it on on the flights because flights were expensive. So you you got back back to the beginning again, I guess. Yeah, and and in, in coming back to the beginning, you know, it's it, there's almost a sense of failure about it because you think, oh gosh, oh. you know, I thought. Things would happen, and, and things did happen with hindsight. Mm. But at the time, I didn't think anything had happened. So I went back to Alistair Little's, and at the time, the chef there was Jeremy Lee, who said, "Darling, darling, no work here. Yeah, why don't you go down to the French house? I hear they're opening something, or I don't know. Why don't you just go and see them?" And he brushed me away. It was a dismissal, but of of such good luck because he sent me to the French house, and they had at that time a restaurant upstairs that they'd set up. And they told me that their two chefs there, uh, Fergus Henderson and Margot, were opening up a restaurant in Smithfield. So I went down there to see them. They said, what do you want to do or what are your skills? And I said, sous chef, I want to be sous chef. I was outrageously full of myself back there. <laughs> and they said, well, no, we have a, a sous chef, but would you like to be pastry chef? And I said, yes, I can do that. I'll be that. And I just kind of inhabited the, the character, I suppose, or the part. Um, so I was the pastry chef there, and that's kind of where it all began. Alistair's was really important in starting me off, but I think that that St John gave me my place on the shelf. And how much of a dialogue was sort of developing the pastry section or the bakery with St John's? Like, how much did, was it? Just what you wanted to do, or was it what Fer Fergus Henderson and Margot Henderson? wanted you to do uh, both both because it certainly was margot's idea to have a bakery part of it and right at the beginning she said you know I, I want bread to be a part of it and i think that that fergus absolutely had ideas about the kind of general style or essence of things but into the details were left to me to to do so i would i you know created an eccles cake and created a sourdough and created all sorts of things, put junket on the menu and did, yeah, I had sort of space to do that. So, so, so let's dial back a bit. So the Eccles cake, mm. that's you then? The, the, yes, the, yes. The Eccles cake. It's yes. the Eccles cake. <laughs> they, they probably one of the most, at least in London, probably one of the most photographed pictures in, in on Instagram, I think maybe, and, and judging by the people I follow. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's, it's basically my favourite pudding. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, apples wow. cake. And uh, yeah, everything, nothing, you know, it, yeah, I have it every time I go and I go to the bakery and I always buy apples cakes as well. And that's you. That's you, Dan. And it's me. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, you're the legends behind the apples cake. Oh, wow. the, when, when Faye Mashler wrote her, her first review of it in the Evening Standard, she mentioned it and said that she quite liked it, but it wasn't as good as hers or something like that. <laughs> something. I don't believe that. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll have to now. dig it out. I'll dig it out and find him. It's weird how St John is seen as this British place, but it kind, that kind of wasn't where it, things were coming from back then. They were just coming from a, an appreciation of dour, plain cooking. Mm. The, the, know, no, uh, the nose to tail thing as well. It's like use everything. Oh, absolutely. Although that was maybe as much about economy as anything. Mm. Something uh, Jonathan was pointing out that if, if we had travelled, you know, five minutes in any direction we would have found people in other communities eating offal nose eating to tail, yeah. nose mm. to tail yeah yeah what what st john did was make it acceptable for middle classes to do that <laughs> we didn't know where other communities were too i mean we, we we had this black and white a to z all the time i hear hear food writers talking about how recipes are always a, a, a rehash of another recipe. That's just bullshit. You know, <laughs> then let's just cut this, cut this, cut this now. Okay. We had no idea how people cook things. We had no recipe. We barely had recipe books. You know, mm. you, you might think, well, you could have gone to a library. Libraries had very little. Books mm. were expensive. We didn't know things. And also, sometimes people were shy. We were possibly a bit shy. Other people in other communities were a bit shy. We weren't all in this kind of social media kind of chatting with one another, um, that didn't go on. Everyone just stayed kind of in their little groups and that was a problem, but also it meant we just had to make it up. But, I mean, this kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about how, you know, you, you did your best approximation of something, um, you know, according to whatever descriptions you could find, but you had no idea if it actually was the way it should be, right? Because, mm. you know, you hadn't been to that place. So, I mean, how did you develop your Eccles cake recipe then? I developed it in the way that I still develop things. I think about what I imagine it tastes like. I always start with the taste in my head. I think, mm. well, what? And taste texture. So I'm thinking, I think I want it wrapped in puff pastry, but maybe we should try and put some lard in it and maybe we mm. should have butter in it. And maybe because it's St. John, we should get alcohol in there somewhere. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, you're almost like painting, painting a picture through a recipe of what you think mm. it's like. And even going back into issues of cultural appropriation, when at that time, we just... We had no idea. We had no idea what <laughs> things were like. So we just, you know, when I see, you know, Walker's crisps have a Malaysian flavoured something or whatever, you know, and I think it's almost like the old days where people just, I don't they know. Are just they are making it up a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're just making it up. We but thought. The thing about Eccles cakes, is what I find interesting is that every so often my local supermarket stocks Eccles cakes. But so oh. I've tried them and they have tasted Similar to the St. John's version. Um, not Marks good. and Spencer's one's not bad. Ah, uh, yeah, but Marks and Spencer's is based on St. John, isn't it? A yeah, I, I, I can tell. I've eaten a lot of Eccles whether cakes. Whether any of these Eccles cakes are actually Eccles cakes or whether they're all Dan Leopard's idea of an Eccles... Your, your, your kind of platonic ideal of an Eccles cake. So. Well, absolutely. Look, and this is... I, I have a, a lot of older Italian cookbooks that 
and baking books that, that will have old recipes for panettone that mm. are nothing like what we think of as a panettone today. Oh, all wow. Of them. Okay. Uh, there's, there's baking powder panettone. There's little, all, all sorts of them. The same with croissant too. The way, what we think of as a croissant if you go back even into the late 70s, it wasn't like that. It was much heavier. It was much more buttery. It was, it was just a different beast. Mm. So it's like the talk about the conversation about authenticity. You've really got to just allow different versions to exist sometimes because that, that is probably the most authentic thing mm. is that they live simultaneously in this, this kind of community. In Britain, it was a food writer, Laura Mason, said to me, one of the things that defines the British high street is competition and that we didn't have one way of doing things. We didn't have an authentic pork pie. We didn't have an authentic Eccles cake because as mm. soon as you said yours was authentic, someone would set up across the road, make it differently and claim they were authentic. <laughs> Just we, we didn't have a brotherhood of bakers. No, we had these fighting... So it's, it's been factions. like that forever, has it? Yes, that is our, our tradition. Is that <laughs> is is we never had authenticity. That mm. that, that is the British tradition. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is the issue, one of the issues with authenticity, as you say. I mean, who gets to define what what is authentic? And mm. I, you know, I think these days particularly, it is used as like uh, I've said before, it's like a hammer used to beat people over the head. Mm. And um, and look, my mother defines authenticity. She has a very clear idea. She's ninety something, and she's still says a potato chip is this size she has the wow, way really? things should be cooked yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah she's very very stern about that and of course she's she's also insane but you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am so much like her my husband says I'm very very much like her is that a, is that a I have you've turned into your mother <laughs> ah you see I'm getting to the age where I think it's a good thing now ah. <laughs> I used to think it's a bad thing and I Yay. go ah but that's where my creativity comes from or that's where this comes from or that comes from so one of the side effects of the pandemic in 2020 has been this sort of explosion of home baking. And so everyone's made banana bread or sourdough. I've made banana bread, but I haven't gone down the sourdough route for various reasons. So what's, what's that been like for you as a spectator? And at the beginning of lockdown, first lockdown, your book, The Handmade Loaf, it suddenly it was it was it was lovely yeah, yeah really really good <laughs> i think there's a lot of things we've done this lockdown um even down to these newsletters that have come out that are amazing and people are doing things because they've got the time to do it or maybe they think if not now when so sourdough grew out of that because because it, it does need nursing it does need need uh, cultivation at home so people around. found it <laughs> yeah people had the time and you know time to to play with it and and uh, experiment so that was really exciting yeah it felt lovely to be a part of it but did you find that people were pestering you a lot asking for help <laughs> yes yes no yes let's say five or six sort of dms and also because i'm kind of there's there's um instagram and Twitter and Facebook mm. messages were coming in every direction mm. and I, it all got a bit much so I stopped answering after a while <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't keep it up buy the book all the answers are in my book just go and get it you could have said so many recipes particularly now require that missing ingredient skill and you know we try to write recipes that avoid skill but there's a point where you just have to practice you know I'm sure there's a quick and easy dumpling recipe i'm sure there are quick and easy 
udon recipes and things like that. But actually, the truth is, they'll come out brilliantly if you make it a hundred times. And it may be that half of those times, it's it's a bit rubbish. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? It is funny though, isn't it, in this country that sort of sourdough is considered middle class aspirational products. Whereas I was looking through your book, the handmade loaf, when you travelled across Europe. And it's not, it's not, you know, bread is very different over there, isn't it? Well, back when I, I travelled back in sort of 2003, four, it was different because also the internet hadn't changed things. So, you know, a baker in Finland didn't really know what a bakery in Italy is like. So that you tended to get pockets of, of traditions that didn't move. So there were techniques that I'd see in, in Sweden or Denmark that no one had seen. Uh, whereas today through Instagram in particular, it's it's not like that. The, certainly with the bakers that I interact with on Instagram, there can be a baker in in uh, Tasmania, in Australia, chatting with a baker in, in uh, Tokyo, and other people are joining in the conversation and they're sharing techniques and ideas, which is really good, really good. But it was like one, one Spanish baker said to me how depressed he was at the thought that Tatin Bakery were opening in South Korea. Uh, he thought, you know, are we just going to see this these holy sourdough loaves everywhere? Is that is that, is that where we're headed? Mm. <laughs> we're headed. There's just one bread. Can't we celebrate local? Can't we kind of kind of preserve some of our our identities? Do we have to all merge into one Californian dream thing? <laughs> <laughs> we have like yeah. avocado and sourdough like everywhere, basically. It's funny because that kind of reminds me about how people people who don't necessarily know what oh. McDonald's is like in other countries complain about the McDonald'sification mm. of McDonald's of all the different countries. But, you know, if you go to the East, you know, you go to Asia, Singapore, Japan, oh, yes. McDonald's is actually yes, quite it's very good. I like yeah, it. Yes, she can get, like, I could get like a Nazi Lamak in, in Malaysian exactly. uh, McDonald's, can't you? Or you can get mochi so in Taiwan So Tatine could do that, right? Tatine could do that. <laughs> to tailor it to the local, uh, local palate. And actually, that kind of leads into what we were going to ask next. So this is a question from the guest from our first episode, who right. was the yes. chef Tim Anderson, you know, who runs the Namban restaurants. And he really wants to know, how did you get involved with the Japanese well, citrus community? <laughs> I don't know if people know, but I try and make a big thing about it. I'm one of the, the patrons and a judge at the World Marmalade Awards, which is this terribly eccentric British tradition now. It started because Jane Hazelmacosh at Dalmain in Cumbria had heard a report that Nutella was becoming uh, Britain's favourite spread. And she was just appalled, <laughs> completely appalled. <laughs> So she got some friends together and they held this little marmalade competition. They all bought their jars of marmalade and tasted it. And then she created a website. And at the time, I'd started at The Guardian, but I was also writing for The Telegraph. And somehow on Googling, I, I found this page that said Britain's uh, Marmalade Awards. And I thought, gosh, that sounds like a Telegraph story if ever there was one. So <laughs> I pitched it to them and they said, oh, look, that sounds fabulous. So I went up and photographed it and just and met Jane and became involved in, in it. So I started to help with the judging at first because there were just no judges and too many jars. There were jars everywhere, <laughs> but it grew and, and we started to get jars from overseas. But what was coming from Japan in particular were these amazing marmalades, really, really good that we 
to some extent didn't uh -huh. know how they were made because the peel was completely <laughs> translucent. They were very, very tender. Uh, they often had a very soft set, a set, but a very, very soft set. And the brightest um, uh -huh. uh, citrus flavor, they had such a fresh flavor without any bitterness whatsoever. So we were so uh -huh. dazzled. But one thing that is different in, in Japan too is that there is a, an appreciation of detail. Whereas I think in Britain, we almost have an annoyance mm. of about detail that people think that <laughs> if a recipe isn't quick and easy there's something definitely wrong with it so when i'm teaching in japan people want to know how do you make it the best way what is the most accurate way to make it what is the the precision and that's what they'll do though because that's that's why they're doing it i mean we do have many people in many crafts in britain that that want to do it really well but we have a hell of a lot of people that want to budget it's a generalization but i think the thing about japan is i think there's generally a mindset that if you're going to do something you do it well right you are going to be the best at it which is why you have kind of the single cuisine restaurants so you'll have mm, ones that only mm. make udon and only make ramen and only mm. make you know tonkatsu so i guess it's that same yes, attitude and, to um, making marmalade right and possibly we used to be like that too and i think that when 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 the sort of uh, class ceiling sort of broke off things in the in britain in the sort of 50s 60s 70s um maybe i don't know things especially for the trades got a bit mucked up it allowed people freedoms, but maybe we lost lost traditions. And maybe you you could argue that about Japan that in keeping traditions, there are certain kind of social freedoms that maybe people don't quite have. Maybe. But I think a lot of it is also what you were saying earlier about consumers, right? It's what the public wants. And I think here the public did get to a point where, you know, if you went to a restaurant, people wanted everything. You know, that's how you get these yeah. pan-European, pan-Asian, yes. pan-everything. Where, where where people want to be able to have breakfast or a full mm. roast or a, and and know. absolutely and you know even today where you you know as as you've seen and firsthand that if you say to a chef or cook you know that isn't the way to cook that you really shouldn't then they're so indignant that you have suggested whereas <laughs> maybe in Japan it's a bit different that you know that. I, I notice almost a hesitancy with cooks where they don't even want to begin to cook it because mm. they don't understand how to cook it. And so there's this lovely, I find, sort of desire to understand things that, that we could do more of here. If we yeah, took more time in learning to understand other cuisines, that would be a good thing in Britain. That'd be a very good thing. I think, I think there's conflation, isn't there, of... Uh, cultural appropriation and authenticity and they're not they're linked they're related but they're not one and the same you know so I think I think some mm. things that Mimi's gets accused of is being a, a gatekeeper or being <laughs> you know and we've already said it's not about authenticity it's no. it's you know for me quite often it's it's a language mm. thing if you go back to the Eccles cake example, right, mm. you know, if you, if you do a slightly different fruit mix or this, that, the other, and, and it's a little bit different from the original recipe, mm. I think that's great. I have no issue with that. My issue is if, you know, someone presents you with a croissant mm. and says, this is an Eccles cake. And it's such a basic... Yeah, it's the reason why it's, it's called a, a croissant. It's such a basic thing. Yeah, well, exactly. cake, yeah. Whereas if an Eccles yeah. cake is some pastry with some fruit inside... Mm. Yeah. And you so know, you change the, the, the mix, the combo inside yeah, so you, you know, So you could even possibly put different kinds of peel or whatever in there. Yeah. It's still essentially it's still an mm. apple's mm -hmm. cake in essence. But okay, so Japan, marmalade. Obviously 
you found a community over there who embraced you because you were you're one of the marmalade judges tell us a bit more though because it's not just marmalade you do when you're there you're you, you travel around quite a lot and you uh you, you seem to kind of yeah i saw you teaching like doing a yes, master class well, yes well in, in japan yeah. there are english obsessives people that are obsessed i mean yeah i'm sure that happens here too you know the people that are japan obsessive so they, yeah they, yeah they people make yeah. sushi yeah, here they go to sushi classes, classes. Really, absolutely <laughs> but in in tokyo it's a big thing and also yeah something that they kind of wanted me to do as a foreigner it was best if i stay in foreign territory a little bit <laughs> kind of, you know. oh, okay. um, I mean I have been in situations where I've taught Italian chefs how to make focaccia not that long ago and those things they're a bit awkward uh-huh. they're, they're a bit tricky but if you're teaching people things that they want to learn about but don't quite know about that's that's fun because like your website you've got a tab in Japanese and you tweet in Japanese a lot don't you You know we, so... we expect other people to speak English we expect everybody to speak English now I am learning Japanese but I don't speak Japanese or I'm not even vaguely mm. proficient and I do rely on Google Translate and things but give it a go I mean you know mm. I just think we're, we, we can be mm. so arrogant in just expecting everyone to speak English and I'm often with people yeah. that it, you know English is their third language in some cases or fourth and I'm thinking gosh come mm. on get it together <laughs> you know so I just I, I have all this guilt all the time so I do try to you know attempt to reply to people in even using Google Translate in Japanese just just to say I appreciate that you have a different language to me. Obviously, I don't necessarily know that much about Japanese baking, but from my experience of having been there a few times, um, it seems to fall into two categories. There's like the really high-end, kind of almost French-inspired patisserie that they do out there. So, you know, some of the best pastries I've had have been in Japanese bakeries. Um, And then the other side of the coin is... Things like melon pan or like um, corlets and things like that. Do you, do you I, love that kind of stuff as well? Yeah, I really do. I really, really do. Down in Yawatahama, there's a supermarket chain called Fuji. And Fuji have a little in-store bakery. And it just, it's just wonderful. It's just like nothing I can connect with. So I want to eat everything. Because I, I love eating things I don't, when I don't know what they are. Um, they're the ones I go for. So, and especially with hot dogs in them or different stuff so after i discovered that properly then when i was back in tokyo i was more confident about going into the little uh, sort of auntie sort of places where it's just just some older women cooking together and they make little sandwiches and things i like them yeah i i like that because i i always want to i don't know just just eat what everybody else is eating and try and try and understand it in some way uh, I want to understand popular things. I'm I'm fascinated by popular flavors. Well, like the way natto is. I'm was determined to like natto. I thought I don't care how long it's going to take me. I'm going to eat it, so I kept eating it, and I really struggled. And uh, but now I can enjoy it. And on a little bit of rice, it's all completely lovely. And okay. Mm. Um, I guess with natto, it's textural as much as flavor. I mean, the flavor mm. is is not frightening it's it's the texture it is and also the visuals the visuals can be well, quite yeah the visuals um, but i found that if you get it onto onto the rice then the texture with the rice and then in the, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a nice bit of alchemy mm. going on there actually yeah so it's, it's kind of leading on from that and we wanted to know whether you watched that episode of great british bake-off about japanese baking and what you thought about it 
You know, I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it. I didn't. Probably don't watch it. It, It's a a show that's very much about putting the contestants in jeopardy and putting them under pressure and getting them to do things. So asking them to do things that they can't do is, is really part of it because I think, you know, as a nation, we probably get excited at watching people fail. <laughs> oh, it's awful though. Cause it's, for, it's, it's the fact that it's because it's domestic equipment, and so they don't have blast chillers, and so they're there waving. Their, and they're in a tent. Their trays. <laughs> they're in a tent. And we all in the Australian version. Yes, you? I was the judge on uh, series one of the Great Australian Bake Off. It uh, confused people in Australia because it was very British. It, it it tried not to be British. Did it just try and port the whole? Bunting on the tent. Yes, and... there was the bunting and things, and I think Australians were completely confused. <laughs> and I and I joke that um, when it got to the last three episodes, where we were effectively down to an Asian Australian, a Greek Australian, and a Jewish Australian, the Australians turned off. <laughs> they <No. just> turned <laughs> off. <laughs> you know. There was a lovely guy who was this all-Australian kind of builder-baker and there was this blonde, fun Queenslander girl who was this uh, all-Australian girl-baker. And sadly, we eliminated them in episodes one and two. Did the ratings drop at that point? No, but I think that the management kind of dropped us at that point. (laughs) What have you done? You've got rid of the only two blonde Australians out of it. But maybe also it's a, it's a series that works best as a British show exported. Maybe. It does seem so British, doesn't it? it there's mm. something very twee about it all. Not necessarily a bad thing, but it, is, yeah. it just seems very British twee to me. So. Yes, yes, no, very much, very much. Have you, because we're the MSG podcast, mm. have mm. you ever put MSG in bread? What would it do? Like, I've never done it. No, but, you no, know, what, although what, I what, do. What would happen? Though, I do put it in quite a lot of things. Do you? <laughs> right, okay. Yes. Yeah, because I've got a bag. There was one, right, I've made this hamburger and I, I'd forgotten, my memory's terrible, I'd forgotten I'd put put some MSG in the, the in the mince. And I was eating this burger going, gosh, this is good. This is <laughs> so just... delicious. And I said to David, David, that was amazing. That was just the best burger I've ever, ever, ever had. The following morning, I remembered and went, ah, oh, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, I'm always slipping little bits in. I haven't put it in bread dough. I think it probably works best if there is a flavour to enhance. And I mm. I would imagine there needs to be something that you're enhancing or something yeah, that you're... Some, you're... something savoury in there already. Well, one of the reasons baking scares me is because... It's a science, right? I'd worry that adding MSG might do something to textures or consistencies or rising. Or it's such a small quantity, though, yeah, isn't it? it? So I imagine, yeah, like, say, okay. you know, you're talking, talking about, like, the cheese and how mm. some of the cheese products that, that are bought yes. in supermarket ones mm. don't taste of much. And I was yeah. suggesting maybe if you heat it up, mm. it would, like, bring the flavours alive a little yeah. bit. I'm wondering if you make, like, a cheese loaf or something with parmesan in it whether like a pinch of <gasps> of MSG a, a of MSG it. might mm. might enhance or like enhance or cheese twists I'm just thinking of cheese things mm. basically you're going to have to do an experiment now for <laughs> science Mimi I think you're going to have to do some baking I and will. adding a few okay. sprinkles here and there <laughs> so I have a, a question from Sarah Hoppard who's a listener and a friend of the podcast and she wants to know what impact do you think a no-deal Brexit will have on seasonality and British produce, for example, flour and other 
baking ingredients. Well, she thinks that people will expect things to become super British, so there'll be lots of scones and crumpets, but the reality will be very different. So what's your take on that? Uh, I think there'll be very little change in the flour quality because people... Most of our flour doesn't come from Britain and doesn't even come from Europe. In fact, most European flour doesn't come from Europe. It comes from the big wheat producers. Canada's still a big wheat producer. India is a very big wheat producer. Russia is a big wheat producer. So all of these these international grains market sell into the the big millers and the big millers then take flat, a grain from different countries and mill it together to produce the flour that suits their local their, their their community so in france your french flour could be milled from russian and indian wheat but people don't know that so ah, okay. it's all it will be fine with flour marmalade may be different She'll be able to import oranges and yeah, same at what cost? Not, not at the same price, yeah. Because there'll be lots of tariffs on things, so I think costs will be affected. Um, we can't be much more British than we are. I don't. I, there, there is this idea that we can expand it, this kind of being British producers, and mm. I'm not sure how possible that is. I think we're a kind of senior country that doesn't have the flexibility it thinks it has mm. and you know senior as in getting older <laughs> getting, 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 you know uh, as opposed to to level so i i think that that you know we can't go back and be young kids any anymore and as, as a country we can't go back to this, uh, the politicians have been very good at selling this idea. It is possible to turn back time, mm. and it's possible, and it, it just isn't. Yeah. And sadly, people believe it, you know. Mm. And they're they're importing people, you know, characters off the TV like Donald Trump, who will, you know, are able to sell the idea that it you, you anything you want to happen can happen, and it's it just won't happen. So, I think we'll uh, think. I think we will. We won't note. We'll, other than the change in prices, we won't notice too much of a difference. But I don't think we'll start to see a lot more British produce on the shelves. Mm. I don't think that'll happen at all. So um. the produce produce will stay the same, similar, but it'll mm. just cost a lot more. Yeah, I think. Okay. Yeah. That's a bit uh. bleak, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit, a bit bleak. But it's, 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 it's reality of it, though. It's the reality. Yeah. This is from someone called Cat, who's wants to know about how you deal with people stealing your recipes she, she remarked that you are someone that she's known has been really good at being able to get your recipes taken down from forums and blogs and other people that have basically just used them wholesale what how do you deal with that how do you cope with that well i think everybody's starting to realize that maybe it's best if content is paid for i mean mm. i really like the boom in patreon at the moment i, I was following a young black american writer I don't know if activist is the right word, but he, he was really sharp and really thinking. And he tweeted once, I should be paid for my tweets. Mm. I have so many white folk that follow me that, you know, want to know what I think, and I don't get any return from it. And I, I, I'm absolutely with, with him. Shouldn't we pay each other sort of in, in a penny way for content? Mm. I mean, there isn't a way of paying people fairly, but still staying in an unfair society. We, we, we have to change it. So when people were putting recipes on the, the website, I was being paid because they were driving traffic to a newspaper. And I think people imagine, say, even with The Guardian, that it just kind of makes money. 
just by existing and by the fact that we pay for our internet, there are a lot of people that think that those two balance out. Mm. And it, it just isn't that way. If you go to the Guardian site and see a recipe there, if you don't see an ad near it, the Guardian's getting no money for it. Mm. It's, it's really that simple. If you see an ad, the Guardian's getting that ad revenue. But if there is no ad, there is no revenue. When people steal your work, um, they'll often claim with recipes... Um, it's not illegal. And you no. think, well, yeah. okay, okay, but morally, explain it to me. Yeah. Explain to me morally how you think it's a good idea to take my content and and um, put your name on it, or mm. put you know, or put my name in the meta tag so that you drive traffic mm. to your site. Which Tell is me even morally sneakier. Oh yeah, no, but that that was that was part of the big thing. So how do, how does that morally work? Mm. You know, you know the. Because I I think we have to tackle this right now. So often with our complaints, I'm a big Labour supporter. I'm out out there on on, uh, trying to bring fairness. And people will often say to me, well, that politician, they haven't acted illegally. And I said, yeah, but they've acted immorally. And I think that that what has happened to us? It happens to you quite a lot, doesn't it? People still steal your photographs, don't they? And then they just claim, claim your work as their own who me no well no, no. Mimi like people speak <laughs> oh, Mimi, yes. Mimi's work yeah yeah it happens a lot it's just, it's just because I was, I'm one of the original people that was putting out stuff so if you want you know google the Burmese dish and name of a Burmese dish mm. it would end very mm. from my old blog and so yeah, yeah it would just end up being everywhere and then obviously yeah, yeah. The, the, where it came from has completely disappeared um, yes, and yes, as you yes. say it, it, you know, it's it's a moral thing it's an ethical thing it's just if just it's just really <laughs> shitty basically that people take your work yes and and this is something you know when we're talking about you know all, all these woke snowflakes and things like that we need to pull pull our ethical socks up and mm. as, as a society and say you know come on this is just we, we shouldn't do this mm. um and and it doesn't stop your creativity to be you know a good egg it doesn't. I mean, that's the thing. The, the whole thing about people using terms like work, it's just a, a it's just an evolution of people using the word PC. I, I find it very galling that these things, which, as you say, it's just about being a good egg, it's just about being a decent mm. human being, have somehow turned into something to be sneered at. Mm. You know? Mm. It's mm. just... Mm. Oh, it's very demoralising. And <laughs> it's, it's funny, the, the, what you mentioned about politicians, I, I don't know whether I imagine this or not, but I, I swear when I was growing up here, every so often you get a politician resigning because they'd done something like they'd had an affair or something. And I'm mm. not saying that we should be judging them on those kind of things. But if they've done something corrupt within public office, right, mm. they don't seem to get any consequences anymore. No consequences. And and also no voting consequences. Yes. You know, that, oh, that, that um, there was such a there was such a shift towards Boris that, uh, away from Jeremy Corbyn that cannot just be explained by Jeremy Corbyn. I, I think there was a kind of disgusting desire to see the bully succeed. Yeah, you know, someone who who makes offhand racist jokes succeed. There was a kind of just just a, a side of Britain that that has still left me depressed. Still left me depressed. And it's nearly a year. Is it a year since the election? It's a year and I'm still depressed. December 13th was when they got there again. You know, and I thought, what does that say about us? I I sort of, I I felt more depressed about us as a society than. So, yeah, so going back to, you know, people who steal, they depress me. Yeah. They depress me. And I think, why can't you just be yourself in some way we really uh, will appreciate but, it but i mean you know? i was talking about this and with some people yesterday i think it's the whole it's the overton window as well i think 
I don't know whether people are more sociopathic these days or whether sensibilities have just shifted right. But, you know, you do get people who are just brazen at doing what, you know, if you are a person that believes that mm. this is an unethical thing to do, you kind of go, how can you say that? And they, they just don't have no, they're not guilty. Mm. They have no conscience about it. They'll say something mm. to you randomly like, oh, public domain, which is just such a spurious argument and not true anyway, mm. you know, so... Mm-hmm. I mean, I would never do it. I mean, I just well, if I've got an idea from somewhere else, I always credit that person. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, you know. I mean, this it's just wonderful. Like that's why it was so lovely watching Nigella Lawson this week. You oh know, gosh, yeah. she, yes. She, you know, she she shouted out your recipe, which she's also put in, yeah. in her book yeah. as well. You know, and so she's tweeted it, but she said, "I've got this recipe yeah. from from Dan Leopard." Mm. You know, and and Absolutely. he had he had sourdough and he had sorry he had sour cream in it, yeah. and I've changed it, and then so forth. And the conversation starts. And, you and you've so had an like, overwhelming yeah. wave of love from people, right, because of that. So. Oh, absolutely, and and also from me too, because I thought you know that doesn't doesn't happen all the time. No, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that, and there is you know the. I, I see this too often where people think if the gaze goes away from me what is the value of the conversation to me or it, to my brand or to whatever and I think mm. that you know you should be working to be strong enough that you can talk about other people mm. without kind of cancelling yourself out um, I mean you're and- very good at this I have to say so one of the comments I, so when I ask people for advice or questions that, that people want to say mm. this is from a friend of mine called Pete and he said Dan seems to have an unusually open mind and a willingness to listen to younger writers and food people that I find really admirable and frankly a relief in the general cloud of beefing and he's not wrong because Yay. you oh, okay. oh, thank you thank you you were one of the rare people I think along with Nigella who as far as I can tell, does not have an ego, or at least not an ego that overwhelms oh. your f- need to kind of talk about other people, support other people, champion other people. Like, you know, you mentioned Jonathan Nunn earlier on, who, you know, does Vittles, which is an incredible yes. newsletter. And and you are always really happy to kind of support the people who write for that because he obviously has lots of different writers writing with him Absolutely. as well. And you're not afraid to do that. You don't feel no, I- like that is going to take away from you. And I think, why are more people not like you? Why are more people not like you and Nigella? <laughs> yeah, you're also not afraid to say that you don't know stuff, you know? Well, absolutely, that yes. I don't know stuff, I'm going to go right, find right. out, you know? Yeah. Whereas other people have to be, like, an authority, like, the whole time. The whole time, and, you, you know, know, yeah. you know, sort of feel that they're the king or queen of, of yeah. whatever. And I think that it's also a way of, personally, tackling ageing um, that that I'm starting to think, well, how were people my age like when I was their age? And people like, like Shri Owen was incredibly supportive of me. I, I, I want to, with younger people, say, well, maybe I can help you. I don't know that I can help you. And I don't want my help to interfere with what you're doing. And also, the, the help I'm offering may be bad. <laughs> you know, maybe you shouldn't listen to me. I don't know. I don't know even these things. Yeah, maybe it's also a way, and possibly for Nigella too, a way of coping or or not coping, um, a way of managing our our own personal aging and thinking, well, where should I be at this point in my life and how should I be responding to it rather than being this wizened sort of what want to be want to be 20 year old but you know you know it's also that conversation about leaving room at the table that Mm. that people will talk about and say yeah you know we need to get get more black and asian young authors and people at the table as long as they don't take my job well 
Yeah, this is the thing, isn't that? You, and you have to you have to let go of that. You've got to say, okay, having more people at the table means maybe I can't sit at the table so often. And you have to kind of cope with that. And I see so many food writers are going, you know, you know, if I tweet about something, they'll say, old lives matter too. And it's like, well, yeah, I know old lives matter too, <laughs> but... Um, um, <laughs> They do, and there's some. There's some I food writers. Well, oh my there's God, some food so writers. Funny. If you go through my threads, where uh, yeah. things, there's food writers that go, "Well, what about our soldies?" And it's like, yeah, but you know, maybe you just effed up your chance. Maybe you did, and maybe, maybe you, you that's that. <laughs> maybe that's that. You know, and maybe you've got to let other people who haven't even had a chance have a chance where they can muck up their chance. You know, they they, they need their chance to muck up life. <laughs> and it's hard and it may mean that your 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 opportunities are less and your income's less and everything but but each generation and each needs their chance people need a chance to show what they've got which may be nothing it may be fabulous you know you don't know but maybe they need the a- tables are wrong shape you know maybe the table should be round and it should be like a dim sum table with a lazy susan in the middle you know and so if things go around things you can share share the space well absolutely and 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 gosh in food writing especially in the uk or in australia too i see people blocking the way deliberately blocking the way and you think really really i just think if you see somebody young and talented why not promote them absolutely look that would be my argument and i have Mm. put this put this argument to editors Mm. and there are some editors that feel differently about it and don't don't feel that you know there'll there'll be editors that don't look at vittles and see see good things they don't look at indigestion and see good things indigestion and what james is doing is is really good too there's gosh there's so many i i think they don't see it because they don't want to see it yeah I think that's it. We we could be so much better. If you, as has been said by other people before before me, uh, uh, the mainstream food media has been terrible during this lockdown. They could not have lost the plot more than they have. They're still trotting out the same old, same old. And it's been it's been newsletters and young young writers and editors and artists and creative people that have just been doing amazing things without the support of old media and I, I, I just think it's just I don't know, it's all just been a bit crap really yeah <laughs> <laughs> the world is is fine now <laughs> we've sorted it out we have well we haven't torn down capitalism yet but she just we, we, we got close we got that's close. a complicated that's a complicated one. I think that I don't know what you do about capitalism. I don't know why socialism is such a dirty word for people who don't even know anything about it, but they just know they don't like it. No, socialism to people it just it turns into dirty commies, right? Mm. <laughs> and they don't even know what communism is, and they don't no. even know any. They don't know anything. No. <laughs> They'll talk about Venezuela. And, oh God, yeah. They've never been to Venezuela. They know nothing about Venezuela. No, There's nothing that's like. They're very keen on telling the rest of us to move there, though. Yeah. one last question which is a very silly one is banana bread bread or cake it's cake (laughs) there we go we have the definitive answer from Dan nothing more to say on it (laughs) (laughs) so that was the baking legend guru and all round good guy Dan Leppard 
You can find him on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. And if you don't have it already, his award-winning book, Short and Sweet, is a must-buy for bakers everywhere. This was the MSG Pod with Mimi A and Herm Black. The theme tune is by David Black and was produced by Willem Hill. Tune in next time when our guests will be the chef, food writer and owner of the restaurant Maymay, Elizabeth Haig.